This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Before we introduce Erwin um, Jacobs, um, I wanted to um, give a little bit of background about the, about the lecture and about um, the name of the person the lecture is, um, is held for, which is um, Herbert York. Um, Herb York was a distinguished physicist who spent much of his life creating and leading institutions that have had a profound impact in shaping the scientific, technological, and intellectual life and trajectory of San Diego, of California, and the United States. And although Herb is no longer with us, we're delighted to have Herb's um, widow, Sivo, um, to help share and remember his legacy today. So. So when we started this um, lecture um, four years ago, we began on a very simple premise, was to invite um, the leaders of the prominent institutions um, who, um, that Herb helped to create. And he created many in, in institutions. So, so this is the fourth lecture. And in the first three lectures, the first one, we had the head of the Defense Department's Research and Engineering Directorate that oversees the world's largest and most advanced research and development um, enterprise. In the, in the second year, we had the director of the Lawrence Livermore um, National Lab- Laboratory that developed the nuclear bomb and helps to maintain um, the U.S. nuclear weapons stockpiles today. And last year, we had um, the head of DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research po- um, Projects um, agency that's tasked with conducting breakthrough innovations um, to keep the U.S. at the global frontier. And all these institutions are part of the core pillars of the U.S. technological excellence and national security. And we have Herb York very much thanking us to thank him for creating these institutions. This year, we slightly changed the format itself. In remembering Herb's legacy, as the founding chancellor of UC San Diego, we decided to invite someone cut from the same pioneering cloth um, based at this university, and um, a distinguished technologist who also has a stellar record like Herb did for building world-class institutions and turning innovations into goods that have a real impact on our daily lives. And this is Erwin Jacobs, and the, and the chancellor and Pradeep Kostler will be introducing um, um, Dr. J- Jacobs. Before we do that, I also wanted to say a few words about the last organization that Herb established, which is the University of California Institute on Global Conflict and Cooperation, IGCC, which is the institute that I direct. IGCC is not the grandest of Herb's creation. We don't measure like DARPA um, or Lawrence Livermore, but it was an organization that was very close um, to Herb's especially in the latter years, uh, because he very much championed the cause of nuclear non-proliferation and international cooperation in his role, for example, as an arms control negotiator at the height of the Cold War. And these topics are the core issues that IGCC um, studies today, um, as well as um, a growing um, proliferation of issues. Some of the issues that we examine 
and beyond nuclear non-proliferation includes the sources of political violence and its impact on economic development, especially as it relates to terrorism, and on the rise of major powers like China and their um, role and trajectory on innovation and technology development. IGCC is also actively involved in promoting international dialogue. For the past 20 years, um, under the wise and benevolent leadership of my former predecessor, um, Susan Shirk, um, we've been bringing the representatives of major Northeast Asian countries, North Korea, Russia, Japan, China, the US, together to talk and deliberate about pressing national security issues that confront that region that is very much close to what we um, focus upon on this side of the Pacific. The nuclear dilemma on the Korean Peninsula, Japan-China relations, etc. One thing that um, my colleagues and myself are very grateful for her, for Durindo, is that uh, he was wise enough to locate IGCC here in La Jolla and not in, uh, like other think tanks in Washington, D.C. itself. So, so that was a very um, like perceptive um, um, thinking on his part. So finally, I wanted to recognize also the generous support um, of, of our sponsors to, the, to today. Um, at UCSD, the, the School of International Relations and Pacific Studies, um, Peter Cowie and, and Gordon Hansen, as well as um, the... Um, um, the Jacob School of Engineering and the, and the dean there, Al Persano, as well as, as the Rady School. And of course, the generosity of the York family and Rachel York, who was also be, be very generous in sponsoring. And so I've said far too much, but now I would like to turn um, and invite Rachel um, to tell us about her father and his connection to UCSD, and then have the chance, chance, chance for her to talk about Dr. Jacobs. Yeah. Well, thank you, Ty, and thank you, everybody, for coming today. Mom and I are just so delighted to be here for the fourth annual Herb York Memorial Lecture. A lot of you, I know, remember Dad, and who in later years was known as the great Buddha on campus. But I'd like you to remember him also as the 34-year-old who founded the Livermore Lab, the 36-year-old that Eisenhower brought to Washington, D.C. to fix the Sputnik problem, and the 39-year-old who came here to be the founding chancellor of UCSD. He was a real powerhouse of a guy. The choice of dad as the first chancellor was a surprise. Many people had expected and hoped that the first chancellor would be Roger Revelle, but politics intervened. Some people initially saw dad as an outsider, and a Pentagon man, but Dad viewed himself as a University of California man first. He'd gotten his doctorate at Berkeley, and coming back here was a natural thing to do, um, and it's where he wanted to be. So we arrived in La Jolla in the spring of 1961. Dad and Roger Revelle liked each other, and they worked together closely. Roger explained to Dad his, his ideas, and his hopes, and Dad accepted them virtually in their entirety. Their common goal was to create a truly great research institute. The main concern was the faculty, 
and the vigor of the research program. From the very beginning, their idea was to establish a school of the highest quality in which faculty and students were engaged in doing research at the frontiers of knowledge. The idea was to seize targets of opportunity rather than fill positions according to a predetermined organization chart. That's what they did, and the plan worked. Thankfully, Clark Kerr funded all that. By most formal measures, I think you know by now, memberships in academies, research grants uh, awarded, UCSD became the most successful university founded after World War II, and we're very proud of that. Dad presided over developing and expanding the various departments and welcoming the first undergraduates in the fall of 1964. He undertook the planning and establishment of the medical school. He resigned as chancellor in 1964 and remained at UCSD while also being engaged in Washington, D.C. and abroad. I'd like to touch briefly now on the core of Dad's philosophy and his involvement with IGCC. By the end of that initial Washington era, when Kennedy became president, Dad came to the conclusion that, one, defense of the population is impossible in the nuclear era. Two, our national security dilemma has no technical solution. And three, our only real hope for the long run lies in working on a political solution. That's what Dad believed. Since that time, he worked on both sides of the national security equation. The title of his autobiography says it all, Making Weapons, Talking Peace. He continued to maintain an adequate level of military preparedness uh, to contribute to that, and on the other hand, he did what he could to promote the search for and development of political um, solutions of all kinds, especially on promoting arms control. After he resigned as chancellor, Dad focused his energies within the university on precisely the topic had, that had long constituted his main intellectual interest, the nuclear arms race. Under Carter, he became the U.S. ambassador to the CTBT, the Comprehensive Test Ban Talks in Geneva. Then, in 1989, Coming from opposite philosophies, Governor Jerry Brown and David Saxon, the president of UC, decided that if UC was going to continue its responsibility for managing the Livermore and Los Alamos nuclear labs, then UC also needed to expand our involvement in peace and security affairs. The result was IGCC, the System-Wide Institute on Global Conflict and Cooperation, with Dad as its first director. Under Susan Shirk and now Tai Ming-Jung, um, IGCC has expanded beyond nuclear proliferation to become a major source of analysis and action on other crucial national security topics. Very proud of IGCC. And with that, I'd like to hand over to Chancellor Kosla. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. 
Welcome, everybody. Uh, I have a very simple task and a, and a nearly impossible task. The simple task is to thank you all. Because of your support, I think IGCC has accomplished uh, so much, and it is today one of the world-renowned institutions. And thanks to Susan, your uh, leadership in the past and timing, your leadership right now. Uh, we are really excited about this. And I'm so glad that it's, it sits right here in San Diego. And as Chancellor, I'm very, very supportive, fully supportive of this. So thank you very much for your support. Uh, this is the end of December, so you know what I mean. Uh, now, <laughs> that's what they told me to tell you. Uh, okay, but the real reason for me being here, there's two reasons, is I am so pleased to announce a new fellowship, a new fellowship that is being instituted or established in the name of Herb York, and it is being funded by Rachel and Sybil York. So thank you very much for your generosity. Uh, this is... This is going to be a UC-wide fellowship, even though I hope that only UC San Diego students get it. But it's going to be a UC-wide one-year fellowship for graduate students who are focused on uh, areas of interest uh, to the IGCC. And I think this is just the beginning of uh, creating more fellowships uh, for organizations like IGCC because... Uh, beyond the technical and the scientific work we do, uh, the policy-oriented uh, think tank that IGCC is really allows us to absorb the technology and science into, into society and make a difference. So that was the easy part of my job. The impossible part is introducing Urban Jacobs. I don't know how to do it. Whatever I say, whatever I say, you already know. So if I told you he was the founder and CEO of Qualcomm, you'd say, I know that. But let me tell you, under his leadership, uh, when he founded Qualcomm, that was a company that very few people imagined could be founded and be made successful. But he had the vision, he had the leadership to take it from nothing to a mega organization, where I think once he told me that Qualcomm has created more millionaires uh, than Microsoft did in its, uh, did I get that right, Irwin? Nearly, but, but a lot. Well, he's not ever counted them. That's how many we have created. Uh, Irwin was also the founder of Linkabit, which was way ahead of its time. And what was amazing about Linkabit was that it was the incubator for more than 100 tech companies. So when I came here first, which is only two and a half years ago, everybody I talked to who was in tech business had some connection to Linkabit somewhere or the other. And that has transformed San Diego in a way that one could not have imagined. But more importantly, Irwin could not have done this without Joan. And I think that Joan and Irwin together have transformed their vision, their leadership, their philanthropy has transformed UC San Diego for sure and San Diego in general, right? I cannot thank you enough for, your, for this transformation. And if there was one visionary that I respect a lot of this, so I think of Irwin as uh, the Rockefeller or the Jacobs as the Rockefeller or the Carnegies of this country. And clearly, I think uh, that's how I think of you. And thank you very much for your... Uh, generosity, but I'm more excited about what you're going to tell us today about the future of LTE and what stock should I buy. In terms of What's up, Irvin Jacobs? Thank you very much, Pradeep. And it's always great to come back to UCSD and have this opportunity, really, to remember Herb York, who I think. Everyone who knew him uh, just loved him and was very impressed by him. And, of course, he has accomplished so much in the, in the various years. And I must say, and I'll come back to this, that uh, he probably played a role in Joan and I deciding to come here to UCSD. Uh, 
once we were thinking about it and read about the fact that he was the founding chancellor and everything that he had accomplished, we thought, well, that must be a school that's going to have a great future. And that was part of the uh, rationale for coming here. So uh, it's very much a pleasure to be able to be associated again with Herb in this way. A little bit of history. Some of this, some of you may already know, so I hope I'm not going to bore too many, but um, we uh, met Joan and I at Cornell. And the way I ended up at Cornell uh, was a little strange because my high school counselor in New Bedford, Massachusetts, told us that there was no future in science nor engineering. <laughs> my folks had a small restaurant. He said, you have to go to Cornell, which has a hotel school. <laughs> and, and so I, I did go to Cornell and, and spent a year and a half in the hotel school. And that's where, indeed, I did meet Joan, so we've been together ever since. And I must say, the hotel school had one other great advantage before I switched over to engineering. And that was I had a year's course in accounting, which, although at the time, once I switched, didn't re I didn't realize it would ever be useful. But indeed, it's been invaluable. And so for those, if there are engineers or others, here, I understand now that the Rady School is indeed offering an accounting course to undergraduates, I'm sure to graduates as well, uh, and so that's something that, uh, that turns out to be uh, very worthwhile indeed. Um, Cornell, I also had my first exposure probably to running a project, and uh, that was as a senior uh, thesis. Uh, designed a digital differential analyzer, which is a digital version of an analog computer which nobody remembers very much about any longer. But what I do most remember is that I had to build it out of blocks for an old IBM 650 computer. And so you get two gates and a device that was about yay big. We've come a long way ever since. And so that's, that's been a major step ahead. Decided to uh, go to uh, MIT for graduate, after switching into engineering. Went on to MIT for graduate work. And while at Cornell, I had had a course from Henry Booker, and I'll come back to Henry shortly, uh, in electromagnetic theory. And Henry Booker was just a wonderful professor. He had a way of not just going through the mathematics, but just giving you a very good intuitive feel for uh, the theory and how to best use it, et cetera, which has turned out to be valuable uh, ever since. So when I went to MIT, I was thinking that I would do my doctorate in EM theory, but Claude Shannon had just arrived, and he was the father, so-called, of information theory. He had done the work at Bell Telephone Laboratories during the war, and uh, that was just a very exciting field. And the more I learned about it, the more I was intrigued. And so I ended up doing my master's thesis on reliable networks, which, of course, has turned out to be useful as well ever since. <laughs> and, uh, and my doctorate, excuse me. And uh, then was invited to stay on at MIT um, uh, to teach. And so one of the opportunities I had was to take this information theory, which until then had been very much applied mathematics, and with another professor have a, a senior level course where we showed that the information theory could indeed be useful 
uh, in the practical, in the real world, as it's called, and, uh, and then ended up writing a textbook, uh, perhaps the first of the uh, textbooks on digital communications, uh, with another professor there, Jack Wozencraft, and uh, that really uh, gave us a chance to think through how indeed this theory might be useful, and then of course to go ahead and be teaching it. Well, while MIT we did something else that was fateful that we didn't realize at the time. We took a year's leave for our one visit to California and came up to Jet, Jet Propulsion Laboratory about the time of some of the moon shots and so on and uh, did some work on communications with the NASA Resident Research Fellowship there. And we found we liked California very much and so we decided that when career is over, we'll come out to retire. <laughs> But just after getting back to Boston, to Cambridge, um, had a call from Henry Booker, Cornell professor, that he was coming out to help start electrical engineering, except it was called applied electrophysics uh, at the time, but a new department here at a brand new university in San Diego, and would I come out to, uh, to join and help start engineering? And we debated about that back and forth, obviously, uh, I think one of the best decisions we ever made was that we did decide to come. We had four children at that point, packed them up in an old van and came cross country. And it was a very exciting school. It still was a very exciting school, but then it was very tiny. And so it was very special to, uh, to come here. And um, we used to entertain visitors all the time, try to lure them to be faculty members. And so there were always parties, so it was a very social place, even though it was still quite small. And uh, I remember one of the parties was at Harold Jury's home. And uh, as I walked in the door, he mentioned that, uh, oh, you're an electrical engineer. Come here and take a look. <laughs> and he showed me, looking out his window toward the cove, that there were all these wires in the way. And he said, you've got to do something to eliminate the wires. <laughs> and of course, at the time, I didn't realize that indeed at some point in the future would do something uh, to eliminate those wires. So it was kind of fun uh, at, when the school was very young. First of all, there weren't enough faculty to flesh out all of the PhD committees so that you, one would be on a variety of other PhDs. I was on economics and on neuroscience, actually. A few others that were actually quite fascinating. And so that was a, uh, 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 a very special aspect of it at the time. And I was also able to start a few courses here, one of which was an undergraduate course in computers. Uh, APIS 10, I think, was called at the time. And the fun part of that was that maybe a half of the students might be engineering students, but the rest came from all other parts of the university. And so you had this very interesting aspect of being, being able to teach to a, a very broad audience. So there were uh, people from the uh, art department, one of whom then later built a plotter and, and did his art on computers and so on. Someone else went up to uh, work with Apple as far as their display. It, it was just a fascinating uh, time uh, to be here and to watch the growth. 
But of course, it was also the late 60s, so there were other issues ongoing as well. Um, I remember one night I was working, uh, and um, suddenly a number of students came in with paper bags over their faces. Uh, they looked in the office, kept going, so it never bothered me, and I kept going too. Um, but I think one of the more interesting aspects was, and I'm giving a little history here just because I do go back that far. <laughs> the, um, uh, once I was taking a visiting faculty member around uh, the campus, showing him the campus, talking about it, and I had an urgent call to come to the chancellor's conference room. And so I got there a little bit late, and there was a large number of students from the uh, let's see, it's, it's called MAYA, M-A-Y-A, um, um, student group and um, a black student group. And they were reading something about the Lumumba Zapata plan. And this was the original document that they were reading. Angela Davis was there, although there was another young man also named Davis who was, in fact, reading it. Anyway, they, they left giving an uh, ultimatum that one had to agree to this plan, you have two weeks to do it, uh, or else they can't be responsible for what might happen. Uh, and that was really part of the beginning of the third college issue. I ended up on a committee debating, along with a few other half-faculty, half-students, debating uh, how this might, in fact, get developed and made real, and uh, found out that the students were much better politicians than I certainly was at the time. But... <laughs> Of course, we did end up successfully with a third college, and thing has, things did move ahead and uh, has worked out actually quite well. I think another, again, early story, and I'll get over early stories then, uh, there was a Marine Corps recruiting incident and uh, where um, some members of the SDS, Students for Democratic Society, pushed a... Uh, Marine Corps recruiter when he was coming on campus. And so uh, they uh, then uh, told the dean of students at the time that uh, they wanted to have a trial by the student conduct committee. Well, I suspect things are still done the same way, although I don't know that. But uh, uh, at the time, a letter would go out saying that unless you respond differently, you're on such and such a committee. And so I suddenly found out I was on the student conduct committee. <laughs> and what I remember most about that was the original meeting was over on the campus when it still had all the Quonset huts. And so the trial, so-called, was to be in one of the Quonset huts. The plaza was full of students. And when the head of the committee decided only a few students could come in, the rest piled on the roof and began banging on it. <laughs> and there's nothing worse than being inside a drum <laughs> when it's being played. So we finally convinced them to, let's move over to the chancellor's uh, conference room. We listened, actually it took a few meetings, listened to the students, talked themselves through, and eventually uh, did find that, yes, you can say anything you want, but no, you can't push, you know, use any bodily effort. And uh, things actually, because everybody spoke out and said what they wanted to get said, uh, there really was no uh, great uproar over that. So again, it was a very interesting uh, period. However, having done this textbook on 
digital communications, when I moved out here, there was a um, lot of requests for consulting. And typically, uh, one consults at max a day a week or so. And so I mentioned that to a couple of friends up at uh, UCLA, uh, Len Kleinorak, Andrew Viterbi, and they said we should start a company and share the consulting. And so that's how the first company, Linkabit, actually got started as a day a week uh, uh, type of company, consulting company. But it began to grow. We had a lot of good ideas and things began to move and uh, hired actually a few students from uh, UCSD as well as elsewhere. And in uh, 19, I have to keep my decade straight here, <laughs> 1971, I decided I better take a year's leave and get things organized. And Herb had come back to be chancellor at that point. And so I had a discussion with Herb, and he did give me uh, 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 permission to take a year's leave of absence. And uh, off I went uh, to link a bit. I should have mentioned that uh, when it first came, uh, I was in Urie Hall. That was uh, the Muir College buildings weren't built. But um, I uh, was actually a member of Muir College. And that had two things I, I had forgotten to mention. One, Claude Shannon, who I mentioned back at MIT, when Muir was being formed, we invited him among a number of others to come out to be an honorary fellow of Muir College. So we actually did come out and uh, spend a few days here. And the other aspect of Muir College, which I didn't know Rachel at the time, but she was, I think, the 71 graduate. And uh, that was probably the first full class that went through. So uh, we, we shared something. So I was still here in 71. I was probably at the graduation. And then the next year, uh, went out to, uh, to Linkabit. Uh, that's the trouble. When you start thinking about giving a talk like this, all kinds of things keep <laughs> bubbling up. So went to Linkabit and um, found that that was indeed great fun. And the rationale I used when I then decided that it was time to resign from the academic career and take up business was that for years we'd been teaching uh, that this theory was going to be useful, would be useful in the real world. And of course, most people are very skeptical that uh, that is the case. Uh, and so here was the chance to be able uh, to demonstrate that indeed it was useful. One of the early projects at Linkabit had to do with opera, and uh, that comes back to Herb York. Herb was the first chief scientist at uh, opera, and I think back in the 60 and 58 or something like that. Uh, Vance Research Projects Agency, now called DARPA, we put a defense ahead of it. But um, uh, we had a project to extend what was then called the ARPANET over to Europe. And um, we, uh, although we didn't get any cooperation from the PTTs, the phone companies in Europe, because they were, it's, you know, why would anybody interest, be interested in packet switching? Uh, we did, with some help with universities and others, build this link. And uh, it was interesting because the first use of the internet protocol was to connect the ARPANET in the US this satellite link, which had a different protocol that went over to Europe, and then a packet radio link, the three of them. And that was done, I think, in 1977. And so we had a, 
uh, didn't think of, it, of much about it at the time, but had a celebration up at the Computer History Museum on the 20th uh, anniversary. So that was kind of an uh, interesting aspect. But DARPA played a, a, a significant role there. Um, DARPA also played another significant role with Linkabit, as did universities. Uh, we had a project to uh, build a satellite scrambling system that we won a contract from HBO. And um, originally it was just going to be to cable heads, but uh, I found out then uh, politics gets into everything. A group of backyard dish owners went to Congress and managed to convince Congress that they can't allow HBO to scramble a signal if they don't provide a unit for them to use at home. They're willing to pay a little bit for that. So suddenly we had to design a home unit. And to do that, you had to make chips. And back at that time, uh, there was no commercial software to design chips. It was still very much of a university activity. So this, again, is where universities, in fact, have a major impact, research universities, on what can then be done in industry and coming up with new products. Before this became urgent, I had sent a, uh, had one of our engineers go up to Caltech to spend a term there. That's where some of the early work was being done. Uh, others went to MIT and up to the University of Washington. I think DARPA had involved all of them in some computer-aided design activity, plus the ability to put chips on pots of a, uh, of a uh, wafer so you didn't have to spend the money for having an entire wafer done for your experimental chip. And I had, we had done that and people had come back to uh, link a bit and we were getting ready to do some homework problems and suddenly we had to do this home descramble unit. And to do that we figured out we would had to develop three new chips uh, using the software that was completely untested. Luckily all three of those worked the first time and that ended up being a huge business. Uh, I won't go further into detail there, but as far as I know, they're still really being used with the C-band satellites uh, uh, that are still feeding a lot of the uh, cable companies as well as some homes. Um, so Linkabit did very well. We, we actually grew something like 44% per year for all the 16 years that I was there and uh, was profitable every year. And part of that was because we for the first nine years or so, did mostly government work. And I'll mention that because at the time, if you had a clever idea, you could go and send it to a government agency, appropriate one, and very quickly get an answer whether it would be supported. And if it was supported, you get progress payments. So it made it very easy to launch a new company. By the way, later I assumed that that would be the case with Qualcomm, but the procurement policies have changed completely since then, so it takes years now to get something uh, moved through if you have a new idea and it's unproven. But at the time, that worked uh, indeed very well. Sold Winkabit in 1980, stayed on until 85, retired on April 1st of 1985, and um, were debating for the next few months whether to stay retired, whether to go back to teaching if I could get a job, whether to uh, going to venture capital, uh, but talking with six others that had worked with me at Linkabit, we decided that perhaps there's just a lot of good things yet to be done, and so we decided to set up Qualcomm, and um, 
give it another try. And I assured Joan that, uh, you know, link a bit again, 44% uh, compounded annually. Uh, that wasn't going to happen again, but that maybe we'll get to 100 people and do something interesting. <laughs> One of our early jobs was a com uh, consulting contract for Hughes Aircraft on a satellite system. And fortuitously, on the second, after the second meeting with them, and it was to go over uh, the, the plan that they had had, which was a bit more of a customary approach, time division, frequency division, multiple axis. Um, driving home about Oceanside or so, and some of you probably heard this story before, but in any case, suddenly realized that perhaps something called code division multiple access might be a better approach than these other approaches. And um, I asked one of the engineers in the car, Klein Gilhausen, to uh, take a look at that when we got back. And uh, th there were some reasons it would, could be good, but one had to check out a whole, whole range of other problems. And um, got back, two days later I went in to see Klein and said, okay, how's it looking? And his answer was, were you really serious about that? <laughs> he did pursue it, came up with a bunch of good ideas, and uh, uh, we thought this could be promising but we didn't have the resources to pursue it at that point. We were working on another program called Omnitrax, which was to provide satellite communications across the entire continent for trucking, for the trucking industry. That also had an interesting story with it because to use a satellite that's designed for not mobile use, but for television to big antennas, reasonable size antennas, and then later for VSATs, which we had pioneered at Linkabit, uh, to suddenly get a very small, reliable, inexpensive antenna to put on a truck was a real trick. And kind of worried about that for quite a while. And again, luckily, Henry Booker, the EM theory that I had learned there, suddenly came to mind and came up with an idea of how best to build this antenna for the engineers here just to have a little probe and a waveguide that would rotate around it so you didn't have a RF joint and a fan so it could fan out and, and provide a, a beam. Anyways, came up with that idea, had to develop it, managed to get a trucking company, Schneider National, to buy in. And it, all of these have long stories to go with them. But in any case, that then gave us the funding to come back to CDMA. And so we started the company in July of 85. This was now September of 89, October of 89. And uh, went back to look at CDMA. It took us a few months to convince ourselves that indeed it did look promising, now for cellular and not just for satellites, and uh, that we should go out and talk with the industry. What we found out was that the cellular industry had realized that the first generation called analog really wasn't using analog FM radio, wasn't going to cut it because the number of subscribers were going up rapidly. And so um, everybody was thinking about how to transition over to digital. I think every lab around the world of, in a, with a large company or university had looked at CDMA, given up on it, and uh, we're all pursuing either time division or frequency division uh, multiple access. And so um, 
it had come down to a battle between the two. Europe had decided on TDMA, something called GSM, um, and every government over there had signed an MOU to only use GSM uh, so they could have interoperability. And um, uh, here, there was a vote among all the various companies involved whether to go with TDMA or FDMA. And actually, the very first commercial TDMA phone we had built at Linkabit, and that company and uh, several others voted, including a number of the European companies, voted in favor of TDMA, and that won out over FDMA. And so that was January of 89. About March of 89, we finally felt that we had a good case to bring to uh, the industry. We went to see Pactel Cellular and to explain about CDMA. Um, they were a little bit encouraging because it could provide much more efficient use of spectrum. And spectrum was the thing that was always in short, radio spectrum, short supply. And so they kind of encouraged us. In June, gave a talk to a group about the size, actually, in Chicago, of people from the industry. And I've often said I had about a 50% probability expectation that somebody was going to raise a hand and tell us what we were doing wrong. But nobody did. And on the other hand, nobody quite believed us either. And so, because <laughs> they were looking at slides. And so, then had to go ahead and build a demonstration. It's the only way to convince somebody. And thinking back on, on what we did in basically a little bit over five months was to go from something that was kind of a concept, a theory, that we had some view graphs on to a mobile phone, which took a van to drive it around. It was a little bit big. <laughs> and a couple of base stations. And we did that by November. So one year after we started, uh, we invited everybody back in November of 89 to San Diego to see that CDMA indeed did work, that we had solved all these problems that people didn't think, and here was uh, a great advantage of it. Um, I've told this story before a number of times also. I'll go through it quickly. Finish the presentation, and in fact... I even have the presentation here. I was digging through some boxes of history the other day, and this was the one we made on November of 18, 1989, uh, to the group. And just before I was about to send them out to listen on the van and listen on the laboratory to both sides of the calls, uh, engineer in the back of the room started waving his hand to keep talking. So I kept talking. That's Evanger being a university professor. <laughs> And about 50 minutes later, I had a hand wave that said, that's okay, send them out, thank God. And uh, sure enough, it did work at that point. A GPS satellite, which was still experimental, had come over the horizon. We were using it for a time and frequency reference. It threw us off. It took a while to find it and get it back set up. Any case, so that worked out very well. Then the question was, how do we go ahead to make something commercial? And to do that, you have to make these chips again. To make the chips for both the cell phone and the base stations was a very expensive undertaking. How do you pay for that? And so um, 
because nobody's going to want to put up very much money if they don't really know about this crazy uh, technology. And um, that's when we came up with an innovation on the business model as opposed to an innovation on the technical side, namely that we would provide a license to manufacturers in return for an upfront fee that we could use for the R&D, to pay for the R&D, and then, should it ever become commercial, they'll pay a small royalty for each of the phones sold. Well, how do you convince a manufacturer to do that? Well, we went to the operators who were buying from the manufacturers and, again, reiterated that it had this possibility of providing 10 to 20 times the number of subscribers per antenna per megahertz that you could get from analog and about three to four or five times what you could get from TDMA. Actually, now it's much, much higher multiple, we found, as, as we've perfected it. But um, that was enough to get some operators interested. They went to their manufacturers, put a little pressure on, and so we did get licenses with AT&T first, and then later Motorola, Nokia, some Japanese manufacturers, uh, and that gave us the funding to go ahead and develop the chips. And so we did that, took two years to develop the chips, invited everybody back in again to see uh, that we now had a commercial-sized handset and a commercial-sized and a reasonable-sized base station. And this was now in uh, 91, uh, October, November of 91. You can see these dates are kind of etched in my memory once I get the decade right. And, and um, sure enough, that worked. And uh, uh, there was a lot of excitement about it, enough that the cellular industry invited us back to, to Dallas to show off the CDMA technology and bring back the TDMA people to show off to the, to what was supposed to be commercial TDMA. And then there were a few others that were suggesting new approaches. And uh, there we did, out, we did a very careful job of videoing, uh, showing vans driving around and multipath on scopes and very good audio to be able to hear both sides of the conversation. The TDMA people were supposed to be commercial, showed their audios, and it was terrible. And that was enough to convince the industry that perhaps they should go ahead with a new CDMA standard. And so then we had to get into the standards process, which typically takes several years. There's a lot of different companies get involved. We managed to do it in about a year and a half, so it was through the July of 93. Um, but it's interesting because there's now, for those of you that follow the legal side of things, uh, a big fussy, fuss about patents that are included, essential patent, patents, uh, uh, standard essential patents. That is, if you have a patent that's required to implement a standard, they now want to hold down uh, the royalties that you can get uh, on those because you might take advantage, which I guess you might, except we always did our licensing before we had the standard, so that really wasn't uh, a question. But that issue is still very much a live uh, uh, issue going forward. In any case, we did get uh, that. We uh, finished the standard. The very first commercial system was in Hong Kong, of all places, in 1995. 
The phones for that system were manufactured here in San Diego because we couldn't get anybody else to manufacture. It was, you know, why take a risk like that and something that was unproven. The next two systems came up in South Korea. The phones were manufactured here in San Diego. And um, things, of course, have, have a bit changed. So we thought, and then uh, the U.S., the operators began to get ready to put CDMA. So we thought we were already getting to a point uh, of acceptance. When, and I'll read you a, a little piece of this, there was suddenly a front page article in the Wall Street Journal, September 6, 1996, and it was titled, Qualcomm Boss's Innovation and Digital Phone System is Problematic and Late, uh, Claims Hope or Hype. <laughs> the question is whether he should be celebrated or blamed. And then it goes on, Dr. Jacobs was blamed by some experts for single-handedly putting the U.S. far behind it in the global wireless communications business, <laughs> which analysts expect to be a $100 billion market within five years. There's a worst-case possibility that CDMA doesn't work on the massive scale required, an outcome that would inflict billions of dollars of losses on equipment makers and network operators that have bought into Dr. Jacobs' promises, and then final coup de grace. They have, they've got fundamental technical problems that they don't know how to solve, says Don Cox, a professor of electrical engineering at Stanford University. So this was front page Wall Street Journal. And uh, that uh, comment from uh, uh, the uh, professor up at Stanford uh, was similar to one another professor from Stanford was making which said that CDMA violated the laws of physics. <laughs> and so whenever I give a talk up at Stanford these days, which I do at least <laughs> annually, I always point out that CDMA now works everywhere in the world except within a five-mile radius <laughs> of Stanford. <laughs> so we, we get over that. any case, uh, these so-called religious wars continued between TDMA and CDMA until we began to approach what's called the third generation of cellular, which was recognition that data transmission was at least as important as voice. And so how do you get efficient data as well as voice? Finally, everybody in the world came to the conclusion that it would be done uh, best with CDMA. And we had a arguments with the GSM operators and manufacturers in Europe and trying to settle out some of the detail issues. And then finally we uh, signed an agreement with Ericsson that had a couple of things. First, we had been manufacturing some infrastructure equipment and handsets. We sold the infrastructure business to Ericsson so they could be then in CDMA. And as part of that, we got over some of the disagreements on the European version of CDMA called WCDMA. That was in 1999. At that point, the stock, that was, if you might remember, the internet bubble. The stock of Qualcomm in one year went up by a factor, a factor of 26, 26 point something. So it went crazy. And uh, 
that was uh, a little bit difficult to keep doing business when everybody's watching the stock market, etc. <laughs> but we kept uh, working at it. And while everybody was learning about CDMA, we were then recognizing that it was important to go above and beyond that and uh, worry about how your devices are going to make use of uh, now data capability. And so we began working on a program called High HDR, High Data Rate Technology for CDMA. And uh, this was back in the very late 90s. And um, that is something that then got picked up both by CDMA around the world and does provide uh, a significant amount of the high data rate capability. Uh, at the same time, we recognized that the device needed to have a significant amount of uh, uh, computing capability. And at that time, that really wasn't too essential, but it was important that you could do that and do that with very little power. And Sanjay John is here, and he managed to find a group that was coming out of IBM. The IBM was getting out of the business back at Research Triangle Park, and we hired that group and focused them on, okay, how do we get very powerful computing that runs on a battery? And that's been the heart of our uh, great success with something called Snapdragon uh, capabilities. So 3G took off. It's uh, now... F all 3G around the world is based on CDMA and now supports something over 3 billion subscribers. Wireless, by the way, cellular, uh, there are now 7 billion connections, over 7 billion, about the same number as people in the, on, in the world. That's going to go, continue to go up. And so Qualcomm, uh, we, I mentioned we sold the infrastructure, sold the handset business, and decided to focus on the chips and the technology and then bring the technology as we develop it into the chips, sell that, and that's been kind of the basis for a lot of the growth. Well, the world goes on. It moved on to what's called 4G, which is yet another uh, technology. But we moved very quickly because the one thing you have to learn in business is the world's going to keep changing. You can try to guide it. Uh, which we do, but in addition, you better uh, go ahead and, and run and stay ahead of everybody else and it's, it's any new direction that may be taking. And so now Qualcomm actually is, uh, has a huge percentage of the market for the 4G technology, the chips that go into the phone. So we managed to do that. Well, the cell phone, of course, is an amazing device these days. Uh, I'll read you one other... Where, oh, where I knew I was going to go too long here. Um, that uh, came out in, in Fortune magazine back in uh, May of 2000, article written by Eric Nee. And he was quoting me as saying, this is 2000, the excitement is the internet, says Jacobs. The phone you carry in your pocket will be as much of a computer as almost anyone needs. Soon, he predicts, Cell phones will handle simple tasks like getting news, weather reports, and email on the road. Eventually, people will use them for more exotic purposes, like locating the closest gas station, downloading music, buying and selling stocks. So, <laughs> it's been very exciting being part of that. I will mention that 
these things are continuing to grow, and so we're going to be seeing tremendous use of wireless, these, these 7 billion going up to 20 billion shortly connections around the world in telemedicine, in, in, in uh, mobile healthcare, in mobile education, in a whole range of other areas. It's going to just have these major impacts. And I'd like to simply note that the university, in particular UCSD, uh, things that are being done here are quite crucial to be able to support all of this going forward. And so when you see something like uh, Cal IT2, uh, now called on campus the Qualcomm Institute, uh, and uh, the uh, Center for Wireless Communication, uh, the Institute for Engineering and Medicine, a whole range of these other areas are producing students, the graduates that are trained in areas that I think are going to make a major difference here. And in fact, I think that the next major industry here in San Diego is going to be based on this tele telemedicine or mobile health. Uh, already some very good results are coming out of that. Sensors of various kinds that can make measurements of your body, provide that information to you, to the family, or to your doctor. Uh, that is going to both improve health care and reduce the cost. So we still have a lot of excitement, and it's important that we continue to do good things here at the university. So thank you all very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.